Ready, uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls, I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. One hundred. This is episode number one hundred. I don't even know what to title this thing, but let's let it roll. <laughs> Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode, actually our 100th episode of Planet 8 Podcast. We're at the Officers Club here on Planet 8. We've invited some very special guests to dinner with us. And we're just going to be picking their brains on certain projects that they've worked on. Uh, you know, with the technology that we have, we're able to sometimes bring back dear friends that, that perhaps have departed this mortal coil. But we're able to talk to them. Some of them are still here. We're going to go around to each table. And we're going to talk with your your intrepid crew and their guests, starting with Reconnaissance Officer Karen. By the way, we're very happy that all of us are COVID-free now. Uh, we had a little <laughs> hiccup for one of our uh, episodes where we couldn't we couldn't commit to recording, but we're back. We we beat back the Zindi invaders and their germ warfare, and we are ready to celebrate. So let's go to Karen's table. All right. Thank you, Larry. Yes, it's good to be back and germ-free uh, here on the satellite. But joining you guys for our big celebration of our 100th episode. And as we sit here in the officer's lounge with our <laughs> balloons and hollow projectors and other things going off, uh, my first guest joining me at the table is well-known actress, writer, and raconteur, Carrie Fisher. Oh. Bravo. Yes, I believe Carrie will have many interesting things to say, and I think they will get even more interesting as the night goes on. <laughs> so, And even more only... interesting from the afterlife. Well, yeah. yes. who, know, who knows what she's been doing and who she's been hanging out with. <laughs> so, of course, we'll want to talk a little bit about Star Wars, but she also uh, had a, an interesting career um, actually, you know, 
working on other on scripts, fixing scripts for people. And of course, being the daughter of uh, Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, she was, you know, Hollywood royalty, so, so to speak, and mm-hmm. saw a lot of things, heard a lot of things, probably a lot of things she shouldn't have as a child. <laughs> um, so I think she will be a very interesting and entertaining guest to have here on Planet Eight. Absolutely. You know, I saw a documentary um, with her and her mother before she passed away. Yeah. Yeah. Very good documentary. Oh, man. I never knew they lived right next door to each Mm -hmm. other. I mean, you could literally knock down a wall and and they'd be in the same home just about. But um, it really gave insight. And, you know, I, I can understand how her mother's heart broke. Uh, you know, when when Carrie passed. But Mm -hmm. what a wonderful uh, relationship that that they shared. And even, you know, her her brother, there there was a was it Reno or Vegas Walker? And they go in there and Debbie's performing. She's like, oh, my children are going to sing, too. And they're like, oh, okay, (laughs) you know, we'll, we'll do a little, you know, song and dance here. Yeah. And, you know, she was quite a uh a smart ass and her mom though wouldn't you know wouldn't let her get away with it they went back and forth with oh. each other i do remember one time though i think it was the first time one of the very first times carrie fisher was signing at a convention when we were in pasadena and um it was it was really it was an amazing convention because they had shatner and nimoy there Mm-hmm. And they came out on stage together and Shatner and Nimoy were, you know, doing their routine together and, you know, talking about things, taking questions. And then all of a sudden, Carrie Fisher came on stage and everybody was surprised. And she walks right out and grabs Leonard Nimoy and kisses him. Yeah. And Shatner was like standing there like, what am I, you know? <laughs> but yeah, it was, that was really funny. So yeah, I, I think she would be a fabulous person to have for a dinner guest. Well, she had like quite a uh, thing going back and forth with Shatner just on, you know, oh, yeah, which, which is better Star Wars, Star Trek, and they'd be cutting oh, each yeah. other down and this franchise is down. And <laughs> yeah, it was hilarious. They're doing that on social media and on YouTube and everything else. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's so funny because we're not part of, you know, that private life uh, until tonight um, at our dinner party. Um, well, what would, be, all- what would be surprising is if one of us has Shatner at the table. Well, well, we'll see. <laughs> I mean, you know. That could um, make for some party. <laughs> but, yeah, these friendships that they have within you know, their industry and it crosses lines and, you know, sometimes they get to start together and a project and sometimes not, but they have, you know, Shatner used to date Debbie Reynolds, I'm sure back in the day. No, just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, welcome to the party, uh, Carrie. Uh, Let's jump over to Chief Engineer Bob's table. Bob, will you regale us with uh, who is your first guest you'd like to introduce tonight? Well, you know, before I get to my guests, there was one like a movie, TV show, whatever I would have loved to see, but of course it's too late now. I would have loved to see anything where they would team up William Shatner with Adam West and Jack Palance and just <laughs> let them all just overact for like an hour and a half or whatever and just eat up the scenery for an entire movie or TV special or something. Hey, I, I would buy into that. 
So yeah, that would be my secondary table. <laughs> well, you know, we should do an episode where, where we cobble together a project with, you know, certain people. Because, I mean, honestly, if you could get Ernest Borgnine, William Shatner, and John Travolta in Devil's Reign, anything's available <laughs> as possible. <laughs> That's an amazing, amazing film. But maybe we'll get into that in another episode. Yeah. Eddie Albert's in that one, too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. So. yeah. Anyway. Mr. Douglas. I, I, yeah. Go ahead, Chief. All right. I guess, well, I kind of have a little theme for my table, and I'll let people figure it out as we go along. But my first guest, and yes, I would have to bring him back from the afterlife, would be... Uh, AIP monster maker Paul Blaisdell. Oh. Ooh. And uh, Paul's, Paul Blaisdell always, always amazed me because you'd have, you know, Sam Markoff and Jim Nicholson just kind of like throwing projects at him because obviously they would like, they would come up with a title and a movie poster <laughs> and then make a movie out of it. And then it was always right. up to Paul Blaisdell, usually over a weekend, <laughs> to throw together whatever the main monster was for that movie. <laughs> and uh, he would do this with, you know, rubber, paper mache, and pipe cleaners or, you know, whatever he had laying around his garage. And still came up with some pretty iconic creatures. I mean, you think about films like It Conquered the World, The Day the World Ended, Right. She creature, you know, all of these were just uh, just amazing creations, you know, and it it did break my heart to see a lot of his masks burning at the end of How to Make a Monster, hmm. but uh, but Paul Blaisdell and plus Paul Blaisdell had the had the uh, the cojones, I guess, to like he was like a short guy. I think he was like five six, five seven. He'd make all the monster suits small enough so he was the only one that would fit in them. <laughs> so even though, you know, Arkoff maybe maybe gave him, you know, like a buck twenty five to make this monster over the weekend, <laughs> he doubled down and would play the monster in the movie and then he'd get a little more money out of that. But uh, yeah, hilarious. he's definitely and I get you know, we see we see him in what is a ghost of drag strip drag strip hollow where they kind of reuse the she-creature suit. And at the end, you know, kind of in a Scooby-Doo moment, they take the mask off and it's Paul Blaisdell underneath, you know, as a, this little meek, <laughs> mild man who is, uh, was playing the creature. But, uh, yeah, I just think, like I say, I always admired him because I'd always wanted to talk to him and find out, you know, how did you make these creatures? How did you, you know, put this together in your garage over, you know, a few days? You know, even like Invasion of the Saucer Men, I mean, think of the, yeah. the head on those things. And I, I was able to see a couple at Bob Burns' basement. Uh, he had oh, nice. a couple of the saucer men. And Bob Burns and Paul Blaisdell were, were really good friends. And Bob kind of helped out on some of the projects back then. So, I mean, having Paul Blaisdell at the table, you know, Bob Burns might crash the party as well. But uh, <laughs> I was just thinking that. Yeah. One, one so, never knows. That would be amazing, too, because you can sit there and talk to Bob for hours about any movie, you know, of that genre. And he just has so many things to say. I mean, obviously, he's done audio commentaries on a lot. But um, uh -huh. but, yeah, no, Paul Blaisdell, always a hero of mine. I've got a book on him somewhere in the uh, 
in the Planet 8 HQ here and uh, read it. And again, just just amazing the things he went through and you know, things he had to do to, to get these projects done. So he would be my first guest. That is cool. You know, I always thought it would be such a cool thing to be in that room where they're developing the film version of Dracula or um, X, the the man with the X-ray vision. And, you know, we got Ray Milan. We'll, we'll make him blind. No, let's, let's give him X-ray vision. And, hey, we can get Don Rickles for a song and a dance. Let's bring him. It's like, what were these people thinking of and how did they you know, cobble these, these films together. It, it would just be an interesting study to, to go back and be able to be part of that conversation. Oh yeah. I mean, that would be, you know, that would be, that'd make a whole table in itself, but um, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just a thought process and thing like, you know, they wanted to hit the teenage market. There was a big, and we did a whole AIP episode, one of our video episodes, oh, right, but right. just really quick. They're trying to hit markets that weren't hit by mainstream Hollywood. Mainstream Hollywood films were either for adults or they were Disney films for children. There was nobody catering to the teenagers. And that's where AIP came in and did, you know, jumped in with like, I was a teenage werewolf or I was a teenage Frankenstein. And they would be driving movie pictures basically with that target audience in mind. And they hit a little gold mine, and then you know, they would go on to create other genres, whether it was the beach movies or the motorcycle movies or what have you. But uh, right, but yeah, and no, Paul Blaisdell, big part of that. Some absolutely, and and some had bigger budgets than others. What was that one we saw, Walker? The I think it was Teenagers from Space, and and it was these Teenagers from Outer Space. From Outer Space, but they didn't look like aliens. They looked like us because they were able to morph into our, and they couldn't afford a, a monster in a suit, so they had a lobster that they'd shine a light, and there was a shadow of a lobster <laughs> that would like attack them. It's like, okay, well, that's right. Paul Blaisdell was out of town that weekend. Yeah, <laughs> he was not available, so that's cool. Um, well, uh, make sure uh, Mr. Blaisdell enjoys some more d'oeuvres and some champagne. We're going to jump over to your mission commander's table. And um, I don't know what they put in the champagne tonight, people, but your uh, premonition of Mr. Bill Shatner being here tonight <laughs> has come true. <laughs> oh, uh, yes. And, and I want to thank William Shatner for allowing us to call him Bill. Uh, only his close friends um, and those buying drinks are allowed to refer to him as Bill. So... Um, Love, love or hate those people that run the creation conventions. We've been to some really good shows with, you know, Carrie Fisher, Bill Shatner, uh, Leonard Nimoy. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, Scotty, uh, Jimmy Doohan. Um, but, but I remember them uh, introducing Shatner as the man. It was like, you know, <laughs> the man. So we always refer to him as the man now. I always, I always said the chat. He's referred to as many names <laughs> by many people. <laughs> but, man, I mean, you talk about a career, you know, working in theater with, uh, with um, oh, Plummer. Um, Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, starting, you know, off in like Twilight Zone and Outer Limits and, you know, some other shows that they had back in the early ages uh, of, of television, black and white, you know, and and, you know, getting Star Trek because he didn't get the first go around at Star Trek, you know, because they were going to do a second pilot. He became available and, you know, he, he got fame playing Captain Kirk. And then, you know, you read his autobiography and hear stories uh, at conventions and he was living out of his car after mm-hmm. star trek there were no so residuals a camper truck a camper truck yeah it's mm-hmm. a charming story that he tells of a little kid you know he's, he's parked he's did dinner theater the night before and he's parked out there and he comes out of his camper and this little kid's like you know shitting himself like captain kirk just came out of a space <laughs> shuttle you know and um Anyway, um, yeah, did he have the thing like painted like the Galileo Seven? <laughs> <laughs> that would have been really cool. Yeah, I, I, I tell you, um, man, I mean, like you know, we were joking around with the Devil's Reign, but you know, he he starred in like so many like off the wall, <laughs> you know, he, Kingdom he, of the I Spiders. Just, yeah, they were he, fighting st- stereotypes, and he yeah, the King of the Spiders, which isn't that bad of a film. He did what he had to do to keep working. He was divorced. Like a lot of people in the 70s, I mean, divorce rates really went up in the 60s and 70s. He was a divorced man with, I believe, three daughters. Yeah. And he had to keep working, right? So he just kept working. But, you know, yeah, like you said, you read his autobiography and it was a hard time for him. He really felt like he had hit bottom and you could say he probably did hit bottom. And uh, but he kept working because that's what you did. You, you just kept working. And but then you look at what happened and how his career had a resurgence, you know, and he he started to kind of embrace the Kirk thing. And, and then he got on shows like, uh, you know, he had I mean, even T.J. Hooker was kind of an up for him, you know, because yeah. it was his show and then Boston Legal and all that. And hey, he don't just don't forget Barbary himself. Coast. <laughs> yeah, I think that he was might Shatner have still been in the and camper. what was it, Doug McClure? I think Doug McClure, very good, Bob. Hey, look, he he had guest starring uh, roles on the the Six Million Dollar Man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he yeah he he was a working actor, and you know if if you guys haven't heard his album, this is God ten ten or more years ago has been. Mm. Some really, really good. There, there's one song on there that is so reflective of of his, you know, career and and who he is. Uh, God, what's it called? It hasn't happened yet. Yep. You know where you know he he does have self doubt even at that stage and age in his life. Um, he's a very he's a very bold and brave man. Look, he, he could be a jerk to some people too. I mean, there, there's also the CD of. Him uh, going back and forth on sabotage or sabotage? <laughs> sabotage. Sabotage. Well, kind of like my favorite Shatner story, and I haven't heard him tell this in a long time. This was in like an old interview. Mm-hmm. Is it, it was shortly after Star Trek, like probably early 70s, and he was out at some amusement park somewhere with his daughters. And there were these teenagers like harassing his daughters at this amusement park. And so they were in line for something and he told them to, you know, hold the place in line. I'm going to go to the snack bar or whatever. And he lo- he went out and searched for these teenagers. and He thought, hey, I'm Captain Kirk. I can take these guys. I'm Captain Kirk. And he found them and they kicked his butt. 
Yeah. <laughs> and he went back to line and that was it. But that was when he realized that in real life he's not Captain Kirk. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, and you know, to, to us tonight, he's Bill. So, uh, again, thank you, uh, Bill, for for being uh, here. Uh, let's kick it back over to Karen's table. Walker, who, who's your next guest? Well, uh, you know, with Carrie Fisher there, you really need somebody who can keep up with her. Oh, absolutely. Quite the wit. So... I am bringing on actor, um, art uh, uh, expert, and fine chef Vincent Price. Nice. To my table, Mr. Price, uh, certainly uh, quite the uh, uh, raconteur himself, uh, having quite a career. Uh, in Hollywood, able, you know, starting out in in uh, what would probably be thought of as dramas or melodramas, uh, occasionally having a like a romantic role in in films, but probably best thought of nowadays as uh, appearing in horror or thriller films. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, thriller. <laughs> Literally. Michael Jackson song. Um, you know, I mean, we did a whole episode on Vincent Price, and right. he was quite the Renaissance man, you know. Um, uh, yeah, just uh, amazing all the different things that he did in, in the course of his life. And, uh, you know, from all appearances, uh, a very well-liked man. Um but quite funny and and quite the biting wit. So uh, I would love to bring him to our little celebration tonight. Absolutely. What what great conversations to be had. We were at a show. I think it was Monster Palooza, and his daughter uh, spoke Victoria. With, yeah, and and you know gave some charming you know stories of her dad and. Um, you know them playing. He, you know, he was sick later in life, and they were playing. Was it Trivial Pursuit? I think, and I don't remember mm-hmm. what the question was. Something like gonads, or was it the, the gonads? An- the answer was, I think, gonads. Well, and, and he's, you know, they think he's sleeping, and he opens his eyes and calls out balls. <laughs> <laughs> he just think in his voice, you know. And, and it was the right answer. And they're like, oh, Dad, you got, you know, 10 points. Well, I just hope he doesn't come dressed as Egghead <laughs> as his character. Because that was his favorite role, is from what he has said. And mm. uh, he started at least one egg fight on the set of Batman oh, when, uh, when he was playing Egghead in one of the episodes. That's funny. Oh, um, so we don't need a lot of food fights at the at this party, but yeah. no, if we do, <laughs> we, would, we do have, we would have the droids clean it up. It's still quite <laughs> messy. Right. So we don't we don't need that happening. But yeah, yeah he's just such a, a an amazing actor because he could be so terrifying in some of his films. You know, and then you would see him, like as a kid, I just always remembered seeing him on talk shows all the time, you know. And, <laughs> kind of and, sure. And yeah, he was always on these talk shows and he was always like 
cooking and stuff and he just seemed like this nice man you know he he was like oh let me show you how to do this and you know he was always so friendly and everything and then you'd see him in something like house of wax or yeah. dr fives or something it's like oh geez you oh know? dinah i'm gonna show you a souffle and yes house of wax opens friday <laughs> oh. but yeah you know i can't imagine like not having a good time with vincent price you know, it, it, it's funny, but it, and I'm, I'll let him know. My mother to this day will not watch either of the Doctor Fives movies because it freaks her out. <laughs> yeah, you know, him talking through, you know, the xylophone or <laughs> the neck. <laughs> you know, Volnavia, we'll get them this time, and it's like, oh. And I love Doctor Fives. That's that's one of my favorite performances of of Vincent Price. Oh my God. What what can it had to be Monster Palooza because they have that walk through museum and and he mm-hmm. did the voiceover for one of the displays right? Well, Do you guys remember that? He would have passed by then, so they yeah. they must have so used his. They recorded it before he passed, and I can't think of. It, 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 it might have been like an old recording, little... but didn't he also do one of the introductions to the haunted mansion for Disney mm-hmm. for Disneyland France? Paris, okay. the, the haunted, yeah. yeah. God, you know, I'll, I'll uh, bonus points for anyone out there listening to this. <laughs> it was like in Milwaukee or something like that, and it was like a friend of his, and so he did it, and it was like a manner of. I don't know, anyway, I maybe I just dreamt it too. Who knows? <laughs> it's quite possible, but if a listener knows what the commander is talking about, you get the Planet Eight No Prize. Mm-hmm. Well, what a what a wonderful guest! I think we'd all be um, rushing over to your table asking him questions. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's go ahead and excuse ourselves over and kick it over to Chief Engineer Bob's table. Bob, going with a theme. Who is your right. second? Well, I got to say, I Karen Karen's second. Karen's second guest was an excellent choice. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, yeah, stay sticking with my theme. My second guest, who is actually still alive, <clears throat> much nice. like Mr. Shatner, <laughs> but also much younger, is monster maker Shinichi Wakasa from Japan. Mm. And, you know, I was trying to, you know, think if I should have any Japanese guests because I need a, yeah, I'd need a fourth chair for an interpreter, but, um, <laughs> Shinichi, he he speaks fairly fairly good English, so I think we're good. But uh, yeah, no, he started his career working on things like you know the old Sentai shows, which over here are known as Power Rangers, making oh. like all the monster creature suits, or not all of them, but some. Mm. Uh, he also worked on Ultraman eighty, so he did a lot of monster suits for that. But he eventually started his own shop called Monsters Inc., which has nothing to do with Pixar. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we when Butch and Barry and Kevin and I went to Japan, we were able to go to Monsters Inc. and see a lot of his props and things that he still had. He had the head of Space Godzilla. He did that. Huh. I think he also did Destroya. Um, and then, you know, he really kind of came into his own with Godzilla 2000. Mm. He built that suit, which was an amazing Godzilla suit. And then he also did the monsters in the 
in the Millennium series, basically. So everything from Batra to uh, Ghidra from, well, I guess it's a Monster X Ghidra from Final Wars and uh, quite a few different. He did the all the Godzilla suits. He did, I think he also did Godzilla Anguirus for uh, for Final Wars. Did but, you do the Megagirus, the the mosquito yes, one? Yes. Okay, that, yeah, that is very cool. In fact, um, when we stopped at uh, at Toho, I have a picture of I'm holding mm, the Megagirus head. Nice. So uh, <laughs> I'll see if I can find some pictures. But yeah, he had a bunch of photo albums that we were able to go through, which had all his pictures of his career in those. Um, he did put together a book, which is an amazing picture book of all a lot of the things he worked on. And yeah, he's just a fun guy. I mean, he would he would go over to Monster Palooza on his own dime. They finally, a couple of years ago, brought him over as a guest and paid his way. But he'd always just be wandering around the dealer's room, and you'd see him. And you know, I was just amazed because it's like first time I saw him in the dealer's room. I I was just moving over to Belmont, so I was like putting together my monster garage and things. So first thing he asked me in the dealer's room, he goes, "Hey, how's your monster garage?" And I'm thinking, you know, here's a guy who builds Godzilla suits and he's asking me about my monster garage. That's so cool. But uh, there was another time we were all eating at a Denny's and he came in and came over and pulled up a chair. He had an iPad with him and he showed us some things he was working on. You can't tell anyone about this. And uh, yeah, he's just a really cool guy. You know, probably the funniest thing was when I, uh, I saw him at a Monster Palooza and I introduced Ensign Michael to him. Just didn't even warn Michael about it to say, "Hey, he's Shinichi Wakasa. He built on he built the the Mechagodzilla suit from uh, the Kiryu suit, and Michael loves Mechagodzilla that version. So yeah, this guy who built Mechagodzilla, he was just speechless. He was like, afterwards, he's like, "Why did you do that to me? <laughs> I didn't know what to say." But uh, now Wakasa definitely a cool guest. Um, always great to see him, talk to him. And, of course, he's an excellent monster maker, so he's right there at my table. What do you think Paul Blaisdell and Shinichi would talk about? Well, Wakasa has a uh, much larger budget to work with and (laughs) and more time, I'm sure, than uh, Paul Blaisdell does. But, again, you know, when Wakasa comes over here, he's always talking to all the the different makeup and effects guys. Because he always wants to learn from them, mm-hmm. you know, and they, they look at him like, he built Godzilla, you know, so they're always <laughs> like in awe of him. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure they would talk about techniques and, you know, uh-huh. materials that they use and, you know, things like that. You, well, you, you we use pipe cleaners? To, what? We were able to fire up the universal translator, Chief, so you won't need that interpreter tonight. There you go. No, Wakasa, he, he speaks English fine. Oh, okay. Okay. So, cool. In fact, Hopefully it's funny because he... After we went to his shop, he took us out to dinner and he wasn't hungry, so he didn't eat. So he just sat at the head of the table smoking cigarettes because you're allowed to do that in restaurants over there. (laughs) And he was like, it was a yakitori restaurant, which is mostly like chicken and things like that. He was ordering dishes for us Mm. and not telling us what they are. (laughs) And then, you know, we'd eat it. Oh, that's pretty good. What is that? You know, that's that's beak. You know, or that's, you know, chicken toes or something, you know, and it's just, like, it was kind of like, let's see what the foreigners will eat, you know, <laughs> He's sitting there. but I was, that was a blast, a really good meal too. 
So, yeah. Uh, cool. We had him over here as one of the guests of our Ultraman show back in 2005 at the Castro Theater. And we took him and uh, Mariyama, who designs all the Ultraman characters, took them out to a big dinner in Pier 39, and they ordered lobster. And it was just so funny because before the lobsters were served, the waiters came out and put bibs on them. <laughs> and it's like, okay, now you know you're going to get something good. You're going to be digging into this thing with a couple bibs on. And yeah, they were total, total silence while they ate this meal and just gorged on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Well, uh, yeah, if, if someone wanted to get that book, Bob, is it out there on, on Amazon or, or has it just been it's, so long? It's uh, f- sold in Japan. Uh, you could probably get it through uh, Amazon Japan. You know, just go to amazon.co.jp. Okay. And uh, you probably just look up Shinichi Wakasa and, uh, and probably still order it. I would have to look, but yeah. Um, well, I'm going to walk over to your table. Book. Maybe he brought some tonight. I can buy one from him at the dinner. There you go. At the dinner. Or just so. catch him at the next Monster Palooza. Yeah. Well, uh, okay, cool. Well, yeah, we're going back to my table. And uh, my, next, uh, my next guest is King Jack Kirby. Um, I thought about intru- or bringing over Stan Lee. Uh, both of them had a hand in creating, you know, some of the heroes that we all know and love. But uh, with with Jack, I wanted to really sit down and, and talk to him over a steak and a baked potato. His concept and idea about creating like the new gods you know, at Marvel, he worked with Thor, you know, and, and the Asgardians. And so when he went over to D.C., why did he pick? And these new gods, you know, they, they kind of had all these cool gadgets and, you know, air sleds and, and things of that nature. Also, his style, did, did he develop that style in college, after college? Was it, you know, it, it really had a big effect on me growing up because you didn't just see stuff like that in, in other books. So, yeah. Wow. I, That's a excellent pick, Larry. Yeah, he definitely had his own style. You know, it's funny because I got this, like, tattoo on my leg that takes up my, my whole half half lower leg, I guess, on the left side with Ultraman and Bolton, the alien Bolton. And mm. they're both kind of flying out, you know, towards whoever's looking at it. And Bolton has these big old claws that open up and, you know, he shoots rays out of them, but they're not, there aren't any rays in the tattoo. So I told the, the tattoo artist, Cameron, I'm like, all right, in one of those big claws, I need like a Jack Kirby power up. <laughs> and he knew exactly what I was talking about as soon as I said it because he had those it was kind of like round you know the it's, kind of as the power was building up in a ray gun or in something right um, in so. the in the comics world they call it Kirby Crackle there you go oh, I need the so Kirby cool. Crackle on my Kirby tattoo Crackle you know the the jet uh, uh, exhaust or or 
propulsion in our in our planet eight uh t-shirt the rocket uh jay designed that with kirby with the little dots Mm -hmm. to give it that like power um it's so fun talking with my buddy because he's like oh i did this and i was thinking about that when i did this and Mm -hmm. you know it it's cool because jay you know he he designs designs t-shirts and and things like that and he does some stuff on the side and you know kirby really influenced so many artists yeah and and god loves stan lee i mean i've got to meet him a couple times uh heard his lectures and read his book and you know a charming man and i I wouldn't get into you know what people call the feud and, and this that and the other it would just really be about jack's story you know, because when you're doing this and they were, you know, it's like a factory. They weren't thinking, oh, I'm going to have an influence on, you know, a generation oh, no. of. Yeah, it's like when we talked to Judith O'Day and it's like, did you know when you were doing this just how magical it was? And she's like, oh, no, no, my word. No, well, none of them um, do. That's why a lot of the comic people are broke, <laughs> at least the older <laughs> ones, because well, they you know, figure, ah, oh, yeah, I'm getting paid to do a job. And they yeah. didn't think about. Well, what happens when there's graphic novels and reprints and blah, blah, blah down the line? It's like they never negotiated for that. Yeah. What happens when your artwork goes digital? Yeah. And it's in the cloud. You know, what Karen, happens when your character's us, used for a multi billion dollar movie? Movie. Karen told, I think it was Karen, that when they would turn in their work on the back of their check, when they would endorse their paycheck, there there was something to the effect that you're, you're releasing all rights. Yeah. Yeah, to, they to work. Yeah, it was work for hire, and they didn't work own the characters. The company owned the characters, and you know, it, things have only changed very recently. Where you know, sometimes they will negotiate for rights to the characters. Um, it's only been very recently that, like the uh, the film companies have been you know paying some sort of money to these creators acknowledging you know that they contributed in some way i mean and, and it's put not a like name, put their name somewhere down in a credit scroll somewhere right <laughs> you know but you think about also like so much of the original art was destroyed in the past too um True. you know a lot of it they would take it you know the artist would mail it in and the anchor would ink stuff in and then they would photostat it and then they would do color and stuff and a lot of times those pages would just get trashed you know so and now like you know artists are are making hundreds of dollars off of original art you know so yeah kirby you know kirby started out uh in the in the late 30s i think early 40s of course then he he was in uh uh, went overseas for World War II, fought in the war, you know, came back and came back to draw comics again. And, and you know, you think about all the years, we always think about Kirby at Marvel in the 60s and then early 70s and going to DC. But, I mean, he was drawing comics for decades before that, you That's know. True. And you think about all the work and, and struggle he had for you know, all those years until finally, oh, hey, you know, you start to get a little recognition. And uh, and then, like, as you said, you know, then there were other projects. He started to do some art for cartoons. He, he did all the designs for, like, Thundar the Barbarian and, you know, and then other projects that came along. But really, 
I don't think he ever got the recognition in his lifetime that he deserved. No, I, I don't think so either. And that's unfortunate. Um, you know, and again, I, I have nothing against Stan Lee, but I know that when, when Stan started in the comics industry, and, and Stan Lee even said this, you know, he he was like the the kid that ran the you know yeah. mail and and the the copies and stuff. he he wasn't you know Stanley yet he was Stan Abramowitz you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, and he you know left and came back and and when he came back he got into the bullpen and started you know writing and and collaborating and um, anyway yeah and unfortunately um, Jack didn't see his. Uh, his um success until way after he he had passed away um so we're thrilled to have him here tonight and uh everybody raise a glass uh <laughs> we'll give him all the accolades he deserves that's right yes. he gets his flowers okay and and on that we're gonna go back over to uh karen's table walker who you got for us well the third pick has was the hardest pick. Now, I, I will say I had thought about inviting Mr. Shatner. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there were other people I thought about bringing in who were great producers of film or TV or, you know, renowned writers. But I thought maybe we should go with the wild card. Oh. And they don't get much wilder than Lon Chaney Jr. (laughs) Line up the bottles at the table. Let's get the party started, kids. Now, Lon Chaney. I thought I heard someone howling from the men's room. (laughs) Our alcohol bill for the party just went way up. (laughs) Yes, Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, You know, I, I there's been so many things said about. This man, um, and a lot of them are probably true, <laughs> but I got to say, every time I watch The Wolfman, I'm, I'm almost brought to tears because he no. is such a tragic character. And, and you know, the, even in the other later films, uh, you know, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And so, I mean, Larry Talbot is like the most tragic character in all of Monsterdom. You know, he just, he doesn't want to be this monster. And, right. you know, Lon Chaney, he, he, you could say what you want about his acting. People said, oh, he's very limited or whatever. He did a great job in that, in that role. You know, he, uh, he really brought out the, the pathos and, and, mm. You know all of the the feelings that uh, one might have in that situation, and of course, you know, then he became kind of the go-to monster guy. Right. For Universal, he played Frankenstein's monster. He played the Mummy, and he even had a turn as Dracula, or was it Dracula's son in Son of Dracula? Son of Dracula. Alucard. Now, how did they Alucard. come up with that name? My favorite part of that is when he does the coffin surfing um, in the swamp. He's riding that coffin. Um, well, how cool is it that he has the distinction of playing almost all, if not all, of the universal classic monsters, mm-hmm. other than the creature from the Black Lagoon? Yeah. But he was an alligator people, so you got to give him a little bit of, you know. I'll get you, alligator man. <laughs> I'll get you. And yes, and he's was also known to be a very ornery guy. Mm-hmm. Um, liked, liked the alcohol. 
especially later in life. He he. Well, you know, a uh, friend of the show, Streffen, um, he did a great documentary. You go to NovemberFire.com on um, Jack Pierce, and and there's oh, some yeah. there's some audio excerpts of Juan losing his shit, losing his temper. Um, it's hilarious now, but at the time, yeah, I'm sure it was yeah. uh, quite upsetting, but, um, yeah. Yeah, he had some problems with, with Pierce over He's, the you makeup. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, you would, you too, know. if somebody sat there for hours gluing yak hair on your face. Yeah, <laughs> might not be too happy about it after a while. Yeah. Well, but, you know, the the well probably ran dry after that first hour, and, you know. Well, anyway, I, I digress. I... But yes, I think it. I think it might be fun. Although we might need to have some security officers present. Absolutely, we we have a Planet Eight security uh, stationed with. Uh, well, not with, but near uh, your table, Karen. I don't want to alarm your other guests. Uh, but between Lon Chaney and Carrie Fisher, I mean, God Almighty, you know, we we can have a ruckus over there. So who knows what will happen. <laughs> okay, well, that, that was an excellent, excellent pick, uh, Bob. Yeah, who you got for your 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 third your third uh, guest? Well, in keeping with my theme, mm-hmm. uh, third one who who is also still alive, although he is retired. I'm going for Rick Baker. Oh, oh nice! nice. I think pick, uh, I think Rick would be a fascinating guest. Mm -hmm. I mean, he basically started out in high school building fake limbs in his uh, dad's garage. And they ended up moving, I believe it was to like West Covina out out towards Hollywood. And very early, I think he was in his early 20s, he got an apprenticeship with Dick Smith and was able Mm -hmm. to work on the exorcist of all things. Right. So that's not a bad apprenticeship right there. Mm-hmm. You ain't kidding. And then after The Exorcist, he was tapped to create the babies for It's Alive. Yep. Which were some pretty creepy looking creatures. I still don't like them. Please. Which is odd. My, my mother loves that movie, but again, can't watch Dr. Fibes. Go figure. Right. <laughs> Just saying. Well, the baby, they're not talking out of the side of their necks. I think, I think it's a neck thing for her. <laughs> so... Uh, Rick, of course, would go on to do uh, Dino De Laurentiis' 1976 King Kong, which we've talked yes. about extensively yes. on the show. Famously, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, he was very much inspired by Bob Burns and his ape suits. And so, you know, he created Kong and he got in the suit. So that's Rick Baker playing Kong in the movie. Mm-hmm. Those are his eyes looking around when they show the close-ups. Hey, he and Paul Blaisdell definitely got something. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Well, Costa needs to get into a Godzilla suit at some point. (laughs) But uh, there you go. Yeah, I mean Rick Baker. I mean, just look at at the things that he's done. He's done. He's won like seven Academy Awards for makeup Mm -hmm. for a lot of his movies. You know, he did. um, What was the one movie with uh, Sigourney Weaver and the Apes? Oh. uh, Gorillas in the no. Gorillas yeah. in the Mist. Gorillas in the Mist. Yeah. And then uh, getting away from Gorillas, I mean, he did um, some amazing groundbreaking effects in an American Werewolf in London. 
one of my favorite yeah. werewolf yeah, movies. Just, yeah. That was the first time you saw a practical change from human to werewolf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with the with the uh, all the the hair growing out of the body, things like that. The hair, the whiskers, the uh, nails, the the, the, the limbs, the limbs extending. And mm-hmm. I think it was the first time you really thought about that transformation being excruciating. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh yeah, Never... I mean, uh, that's a very painful transition. Bone snapping and yeah. Um, and and the ghoul, the makeup for for um, oh, I can't think oh, of his, his name. Uh, yeah, his friend. Yeah, that was like, yeah, something else. Yeah. And yeah, he did effects for quite a few, quite a few movies. In fact, you were talking about Thriller earlier. He did the uh, mm-hmm. werewolf makeup for uh, Michael Jackson for Thriller. Yeah. Well, and he did the best thing about the remake of The Wolfman, which was his effects the 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 wolfman makeup he did i know they I did some, saying, yeah, yeah, they did some cg too but his yeah. his effects his makeup for that was really good so yeah he he would be i believe an excellent guest given oh, the yeah. theme of my table and just a quick you know keith who does sci-fi japan with me he used to work at sony and so he got me and butch and a couple other friends on the lot and we were going to go and meet with Mike Schlesinger, who uh, is a legend among our folks. And uh, we were sitting, waiting for Mike to show up. And we were oh, down by the editing rooms in Sony. And so I hear out of one of the editing booths, here comes Rick Baker and a couple of his people, his entourage. <laughs> and as soon as we saw him, Butch goes, Rick Baker like his voice cracked and everything else <laughs> and Rick Baker kind of you know, gave us a wave and they kept going and I told Butch I'm like man the only reason he didn't flip you off right then was because we're <laughs> sitting on a studio lot so maybe we might be important <laughs> otherwise if we were out on the street that would have been it but uh, yeah Rick Baker like I say he's he's uh Retired now. I still follow him on Instagram, and he's still doing amazing work. He's hmm. basically making busts and doing art of all the different monsters and creatures that inspired him as he was getting into the business. He did an amazing, uh, like pencil and chalk drawing of Michael Landon as teenage werewolf. Hmm. Just looked amazing, uh-huh. and uh, and again, yeah, he's doing. Picking different things. He's, he's retired. He can do whatever he wants now, but he still has his talent. So, you know, he can do a heck of a lot more than most of us will do when we retire. That's that is fabulous. cool. That is cool. So, yeah, Paul Blaisdell, Shinichi Wakasa, and Rick Baker. That's quite, a lot of talent. Quite. The, yeah, exactly. Very good, sir. Well, then, uh, third pick for my table. Uh, this is more of a personal favorite than a genre favorite, although I guess he helped create some of the genre. But uh, Walter Elias Disney uh, ah. was gracious enough to uh, resurrect himself and uh, join us tonight. You're not just bringing like his frozen head to the table. Yeah, I was, was going to say, didn't you just uh, defrost him? <laughs> um, speaking of which, one of my favorite cartoons is the uh, Mr. Toad. And I love Mr. Toad's Wild Ride at Disney, even though I'm Wait, a go to hell. And you're 
you and my nephew was like I don't like that ride. He was young at the time. Why? Well, because we're going to hell. <laughs> you know, you better watch your lifestyle because that ride, you know, could be true. Um, the Headless Horseman. That is, to me, that is the epitome of the Headless Horseman to this day. Um, look, I, I, I love the, the Mickey cartoons, Donald Duck and all that. But one of the things I would I would really like to ask Walt, and people always think, what would Walt think of Disneyland now? Mm-hmm. What would Walt think of Epcot? Because Epcot was not meant to be an amusement park. Epcot was going to be the city of the future. And, yep. you know, Walt, one of the great things with Walt Disney is his advisors and his financial people, even his brother, would tell him, Walt, we can't afford it or we can't do it. it it's not possible. And Walt would find a way to do the impossible. Uh, you know, Disneyland, let alone all of the, the mm-hmm. animated cartoons. Mary Poppins at the time was this amazing movie with all these practical effects. No CGI. Um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And yeah, anyway, um, a lot of folks ask, what would Walt think about acquiring um, Lucasfilm? What would, is it a smart move? Does, would, would he like having Star Wars in his back lot? In, in his amusement park, Disneyland, what would he think about Pixar? What would he think about um, uh, Marvel? <laughs> you know, the whole uh, Avengers Campus stuff and everything at, at California Adventure. It makes money for the company, but is it what Walt would have done? One of, one of the hard things that they, the folks at Disney have trouble figuring out is Tomorrowland. Because by the time... They modernized Tomorrowland. That technology is already old. It's, yeah, you know, it's like your laptop. Every six months, there's something faster, stronger, bigger, better. Well, I um, mean, growing up with Disney, and you know, they were family films and things. But yeah. you know, you mentioned the Headless Horseman, and uh, you know, Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, or even like uh, Fantasia. Yeah, right. The dinosaurs. The I mean, dinosaurs and uh, Night on Bald Mountain. Yep. Disney had a way of bringing in these sort of horrific elements, but not pushing the the envelope past the point where all these kids are going to have like nightmares and right. get scared and never want to go to Disneyland again. They had a way of taking these horrific elements and presenting them you know, and more of a family-friendly type of of process, but they were still pushing the envelope on, on a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some people hated Disney, and, and some people, most people loved Disney. I was reading an article where, you know, he was working on Peter Pan, and he was so invested in that film um, you know, someone they were watching, you know, the the dailies or whatever, and Walt was mouthing all of the lines for all of the children in in the cartoon. And you know, he just um he, I think he would be a fascinating person to to talk to about, you know, his life growing up and and getting uh, Walt Disney Pictures started animation, the parks, and where would he have taken them? You know, um, today, if he was around, there was an article I read, I think, at the family Disney Family Museum where um, they were like, oh, Walt, you know, your fans, you know, love you. And he's like, well, 
you know, they love Walt Disney, you know, Disneyland Disney. Walt, I'm I'm just an average man, you know. I like drinking gin and tonics. I don't think the kids would really appreciate that Walt. <laughs> and, you know, it's, I don't know, it's just he, he has made a lasting legacy that, uh, worldwide. I mean, what would he think about Disneyland Paris? You know, would, would he embrace it? Would he think they did too much, too little? Um, I think yeah. he. I so, think he would be fine with all the different Disneylands and Disney Worlds and what have you. But I think the thing with Walt is Disney was created, and the parks were created to push their creations. Mm-hmm. Exactly, not somebody else's property like a Star Wars or a Marvel or you know Pixar. Kind of you know they kind of blend in, but mm-hmm. you know uh, with Walt, they were creating, they were making yeah. these characters, they were building the rides based on their creations. So to have an Avengers campus or a Star Wars land or whatever, I don't know if that would have really fit in with Walt's game plan if he was still around. There are a lot of people that think that, Bob. I mean, you know, most of the stuff when Disneyland first came out was a living commercial for Sleeping Beauty's castle. Sleeping Beauty hadn't come out yet. But, you know, they built the the castle based on what was going to be in the cartoon. Pirates of the Caribbean. There was no Pirates of the Caribbean movie at that time. That's one of the funny things. The movie came decades later. But Walt wanted to do a, you know, Pirates themed ride the haunted mansion there was no project or anything so he was starting to like build out new orleans square walt loved new orleans he loved jazz he loved mint juleps um famously there's a story where he was going to put a a park in new orleans and his friend who was i think the governor um and said well we're going to charge you an arm and a leg for the real estate now walt because we know you know you're buying up that property and Walt's like, what? You know, that's just the you know worst thing. Walt got pissed, bought property, had these dummy shell corporations buy a bunch of acreage in Florida, plan to build you know Epcot and Disney World out there. And he he said there will not be a New Orleans Square in this park. <laughs> Screw you know whoever the. So that's why you have so the like revolution themed. Yep. That's really interesting. You know, I I do wonder because yeah, you know, Disneyland was totally set up to push the the movies and TV shows and everything that they were doing, but then since they've acquired all these other studios and businesses, essentially they are pushing stuff. But it it isn't the same as Disney made. I mean, it's not like acquired. Right. right. It's not like the Moanas and, and, you know, Frozens and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I think Roy Disney was much more the money guy. Absolutely. And so he might look back on this. He might look on this and say, well, hey, we're we're expanding. We're growing. We're it you was know, a being successful. Decision. Exactly. You know, whereas Walt, it might be, yeah, this isn't what my dream was all about. So mm-hmm. I, I don't know, but yeah, I would love to sit and talk with him about it. And he's, well, he's just such an inspiring person. He is. I mean, I, I, you know, I, no, go ahead. Just a, I, I was just going to say, you, you hear a lot of stories. Um, there's some not so flattering, but mm-hmm. I would just say that I think his achievements are very inspiring. 
I would agree with you. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, he and his brother did not always agree, but Roy always ended up going with what Walt decided. He mm-hmm. he respected Walt and, and Walt loved and respected Roy. And, you know, one of the touching things and Walker, we've talked about this before in Disney World. Actually, someone told me they don't have it there. But, you know, one part of the park where the castle is, it's Walt and, and Mickey. And there was, you know, a statue of Roy sitting on a bench. Yeah, Roy was sitting with Minnie on the bench in the the circle when you first come in. Yeah, and and it, it's a shame if they took that out. But, you know, Roy spent the last years of his life fulfilling his brother's dream by bringing Disney World, mm-hmm. you know, to to uh, life. And um, anyway, I um, yeah, I, I think he would be a fun person to talk with. Um you know, ultimately, Walt was a businessman, too, though. I mean, he was he was creative, but but he was a businessman. And some of the business decisions that he made are, are what, you know, drive people to not really like him so much, whether it was a union issue or, or you know, mm-hmm. uh, worker relations or um, whatnot. But um, anyway, that that is my third guest for our 100th episode banquet. Um, that's quite a lineup, actually. Yeah, it is quite a lineup. Now, let me ask you real quickly. Um, I'm sure each of you have at least one guest who could not make it. Um, did, did you guys have uh, did you want to share a guest who you would have loved to have had? Maybe they'll be available for our 200th episode. <laughs> uh, sure. Karen. Yes. Well, I would have liked to have included. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene mm. Roddenberry. Good one. So he could have told us what a wonderful human being he is and <laughs> how he invented Star Trek with absolutely no help whatsoever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and what would he think of Star Trek now? That would be a very interesting question to ask him. I, With all the variations, I mean, it's funny that we have far more Star Trek now than we've ever had although as we discussed a, a while back with uh, Lord Bloodraw sort of you know what is the state of Star Trek and what is the state of Star Trek that would be interesting to ask Mr. Roddenberry what he thinks the state of Star Trek is absolutely well isn't it good. like wanting is not always a, a good thing <laughs> as, as having, having is not yeah. always a, so pleasant a thing as wanting and that might be the case potentially uh, how about you, Bob? Did, did you get a well? You know, I, I would have loved to invite Sam Arkoff to the table, mm-hmm. and you know, I don't know if uh, Paul would be too happy with that, since <laughs> Sam was the one who was always like browbeating him right. to get these things done and all that. But what I, what I would do is I would take Sam, and I'd put him in charge of the food for this banquet <laughs> because. He'd sit there and make sure it came in under budget and got there on time and, you know. There you go. What do you mean it costs this much? We got to cut this down. I mean, we may end up just eating like salad and cocktail weenies, but, you know, <laughs> he's not going to blow the budget on the, on, the, on the meals for this thing. That's very cool. Um, yeah, and unfortunately, my no-show was John Favreau. I, I would have liked to have talked to him hmm. about how did he create the Mandalorian? What was his inspiration? I mean, you know, he's an actor, but he he really made Iron Man. I mean, that that really launched the Marvel universe. And 
from what I understand, he's still involved in a lot of uh, Kevin Feige's the main person behind all that. But uh, Favreau is um, parlaying his success from Marvel into Disney projects now with Dave Filoni and, and company. So I think that would have been an interesting conversation, uh, some conversations to have with uh, with Mr. Favreau. He's kind of a busy guy, I think. He, he is a busy guy. Years ago, Karen and I saw him walking Monster Palooza with his yeah. daughter. She had the Bride of Frankenstein well, costume. Yeah, on. yeah. It's like this last Monster Palooza that we went to last month, we were over eating dinner, and my daughter like texts me a picture. Oh, look, John Favreau's at Monster Palooza. And he was like sitting and standing at a table with this guy that did the Harryhausen show with us. I'm like, damn, okay. Finish up. Let's go back. <laughs> we didn't see him, but yeah, he was he was there. That's so cool. Yeah. So, hey, our two hundredth episode. Let's get our guest list together, and uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll see if they can make it. Then we'll do a séance live here on Planet Aid and talk to everybody. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> well, my friends, this uh, brings us to the close of our podcast, but we have to do our sensor sweep. This go round, we have a lot of fun and exciting things for you folks to attend. We're going to kick it over to chief engineer, Bob, to share some of that information with us. Bob, take it away. Well, yes. On the Bay area film events side of my life, uh, we have our annual Godzilla fest coming up. Uh, this will be August 12th, 13th and 14th, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and uh, some cool things going on. We're calling this one Gamera Crashes Godzilla Fest. <laughs> so we'll be showing quite a few of the Gamera films, including the classic 90s trilogy and the newest Gamera the Brave. And uh, we have Carl Craig, who starred in uh, Gamera vs. Viros, also known as Destroy All Planets. Mm. as uh, he was the Caucasian Boy Scout in the movie. Yeah. And he's got a lot of stories to tell, I'm sure. So, yeah, Carl Craig will be there. Uh, it's also the 50th anniversary of Gigan. So oh. we have a oh. uh, a 35-millimeter print. Everybody keeps asking, are you showing these on film? You show these digital? Well, <laughs> you know, theaters are all digital now. But we have Godzilla versus Gigan in 35-millimeter Actually, it's the print under the other title, Godzilla on Monster Island. Mm. So we'll be showing that as well as a 35 millimeter print of Terror of Mechagodzilla, which is a film close to my heart since Keith and I did the uh, audio commentary on the classic media DVD of that movie. And uh, I, I promise I'm not going to stand there and talk through it when you guys are trying to watch <laughs> it. But, but I'll, you know, we'll do a nice introduction and call it good. Uh, and, of course, we have our artists and our toy vendors and wh whoever else we can smash into the lobby of the, uh, of the Balboa Theater in San Francisco. And then the Balboa Theater, uh, Adam Bergeron, and uh, he runs Cinema SF. They've taken over two other theaters now. They've taken over the old four-star theater in Chinatown. And they also took over the Park Theater in Lafayette. So we'll be doing shows in Lafayette as well, but that's not quite ready yet. But for the uh, four-star theater in, in uh, Chinatown, October 1st 
second and third, we are doing a weekend of Ultraman. So uh, you come out there. We're still talking guests. We're still talking um, details on that one. But uh, you can go to BayAreaFilmEvents.com and keep an eye on the website and get all the latest information. We also have a uh, Facebook page, which you can access through the website. And uh, also on each page of the website, it says sign up. You can sign up on our mailing list and get all the latest scoop on everything. It's cool. So, uh, yeah, we will be uh, two shows to finish off the year, and then we'll be working on our 2023 slate. 2023 being our 20th anniversary. Wow. Goodness. So, because we started in uh, 2003. So, yeah, 20th anniversary, and uh, we'll be cooking up something, something big. Cool. Sounds good. Well, my friends, uh, congratulations to uh, the three of us on 100 episodes of Planet 8. Congratulations to our listeners for sticking with us for all this time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you you go to planet8podcast.com, all 100 episodes are up there. So you can just do yourself a nice big, long marathon and catch up if you haven't listened to all. Absolutely. Um, My friends, again, congratulations. Well done. Listeners, thank you. Stay safe. Take care of yourselves. Until we meet again, peace out. You mean we're doing more? (laughs) (laughs) On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planetatepodcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. was much rejoicing.